0: Where do your characters come from? Where? Why, from the books you've read, the films you've seen, those old spools turning and turning. Which of us has a plot? Which of us truly? I do not believe you do. I do not. You go to bed and read your mystery because you do not have the courage to ask what it is you do not know. What it is you do not have. Narcissus, did he know how to love? Where was his heart when the weather turned? And the gaze that has fed him turn to face another. A reading life, a writing life, with writer and teacher Sally Bailey, produced by Andrew Smith. It's dawn, I'm looking out of my porthole. Looks very much like a stained glass window in a church. It has that devotional feel about it, my boat in the morning, feels like a chapel. I think it was a cold night, I woke about 4, 4.30, I've been awake since then. So I haven't done enough reading yet this morning, but I've been thinking about my own writing. I'm currently writing a fictional biography of characters who are not recorded or reported much at all in our digital world. Those people I still see when I go back home to Sussex, running around, doing errands, attached loosely to churches and small community centers, doing good, caring for others, pushing wheelchairs, supplying tea and cake. One of them is based loosely on my music teacher who was called Miss Cull. She played the piano and I felt sorry for her because I knew she was alone. So I've taken Miss Cull and I've turned her into a fictional biographical specimen. It's set in the past, it's set somewhere just after the Second World War Little happens in her life, except one thing. Most weeks, she goes to the cinema to escape the loneliness and the boredom of her life. So poor Miss Cull scuttles off to the cinema on the seafront, the Windmill Theatre. And there she goes to watch her weepies, her black and white movies. She disappears inside a world of romance, a world she's never actually been inside in real life. It's a depiction of loneliness and it came out of the period of lockdown when all of us were living through screens, zooming one another, not touching, not seeing in real life in the flesh, never hugging, never holding, with large gaps of social distance between us. Edith had always dreamed of living in a large house with a sweeping staircase. Sweep, sweep, sweep. A house where the mahogany shines and husband and wife share a room peacefully although she has her dressing room coming off from the side because wives must have their thoughts too, separate from hungry husbands where they contemplate other lives. Lovers, women sitting in the soft lamplight. Yes, yes, Edith thought of that moment and shook her head. Edith with no husband no mahogany staircase and wide hall, no gushing, melodramatic plot, no darling, how are you? What's happening? Only this emptiness, this loneliness, this aching heart. 49 this summer, and still she did not know. The reading? Of her heart. Only this emptiness, this loneliness, 49 this summer and still she did not know the reading of her heart. Miss Cull becomes attached to the local chemist, Mr Jarvis, where she goes regularly for what is really a conversation she lacks at home She pretends that something is wrong with her spectacles and she asks Mr Jarvis to fix her wobbly frames, her temples, the sides of her glasses. And she goes back and she goes back and she goes back again, hoping that she and Mr Jarvis might make some kind of intimate connection. Because Miss Cull has devoured and consumed The formulae of romance, that famous film, Brief Encounter, directed by David Lean in 1946, starring Celia Johnson. The original text, the screenplay, is by Noel Coward, and it was a one-act play. It's beautifully and exquisitely structured, very easy to learn those intervals of romance, those repeated meetings between Alec, as Trevor Howard is called, and Celia Johnson's character, Laura Jesson, is her name. Laura Jesson, and she's married to the reliable, kind, dependable Fred Jesson, who likes to do the crossword in the evening and likes to sit by the fire and smoke his pipe while his wife cries silently to herself, her eyes filling with tears as she plays Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto very loudly to drown out the sorrow of missing her lover, the man who's run off to Africa, who she'll never see again, that long yawning gap in time and space. Edith Cole Experiences that every day of her life. Poor thing. So much of the book revolves around Edith imagining herself starring in the films that she goes to watch, and the windmill cinema, an old windmill, um, is is really, in some sense, her her private passion, it's the space where she goes to feel more deeply, to cry with her handkerchief clutched in her hand, to drop tears, to, to feel with the characters that she watches on screen. Edith merges with those characters on screen and imagines she is one of them. So as the book progresses, as my book progresses, Edith becomes a star on screen in her own mind. Romance comes to women with pretty, wistful faces. Romance comes to the woman with the wide moon face and the large saucer eyes. She looked so sad and sadder when the Rachmaninoff played. It worked her up into a frenzy, those keys soaring inside her head, inside her heart, at the thought of never being able to see him again. the thought of her husband sitting by the fire waiting for her to return the thought of the man she could not call her lover she could not call him her lover running after her in the wet streets desperate to ask her to return her lover, her lover So many thoughts, she ran with so many wild and painful thoughts, and Edith's heart beat harder when the piano rippled up and down, so it was going to break her heart, her heart, her heart, her heart, her heart, her heart, her heart. Her heart. So the keys might fly off and hit her on the face or in the heart, the heart. There was so much passion, it might break her. Pond life, that light and dark pond, those endlessly distracting shadows, the consumption of screen life, because my book is really exploring how we survive lives on screen as writers and readers. How can we possibly continue to do the deep work, the deep, murky, submerged work of the unconscious mind, from which I think most of my imagery comes? It arises out of this pond, so to speak. How can we do that deep underwater work whilst all the time we're distracted by the digital world we're all now subsumed by that makes us feel special and known and yet keep us apart from others that allow us to create fantasies and to project onto the world carefully curated, distorted versions of ourselves which often are nothing like the actual circumstances, the actual self behind the screen This morning i've been fighting a battle with myself to switch my phone on and off really it's bombing its way into my consciousness into my concentration updates and notifications and phone calls and text messages and whatsapp messages and voice notes and phone calls coming in and if we switch our phone off it seems to me that all well, hell a, a quiet sort of hell breaks out where were you why weren't you on where's your phone why aren't you where's your phone why is it not on etc and I want my concentration to be as smooth as that river surface, that glassy surface outside my window, or my glass pane. I don't want it to be interrupted. The pane of my window, I mean. So there's this love-hate relationship with my phone, which I'm sure is familiar to many of us at the moment. We know I want to throw it in the river. Perhaps the future of the novel is poetic because poetry feeds us when we are ill and distracted. And we are all ill. We are all distracted. Our lives have made us so from gazing too long at ourselves and others. Narcissus. Did he know how to love? Where was his heart when the weather turned and the gaze that has fed him turned to face another? Perhaps the future of the novel is poetic because poetry feeds us when we were ill and distracted. And we are all ill, we are all distracted. Our lives have made us so, from gazing too long at ourselves and others. there's the kettle. It's like the ringing of the train bell. I associate trains with writing because trains obviously move forward at a rather rapid speed and that's what the writer wishes for. She wishes to be lifted up and put down somewhere else, to be moved about unconsciously. And there's a very famous essay by Virginia Wharf called Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown and it takes place in a railway carriage and it's really an inquiry into the state of the of the novel and what the novel does Um, whether the novel should just audit and document life or whether it does something more transformative more exhilarating more like a train journey perhaps and you see the countryside whizzing by and life suddenly feels sped up And carriages are like room spaces. They're little private rooms. They're little closets for thinking. They're spaces for thought. And this is something I've been holding in my mind as, as I've been writing my new book. I wrote this little note to to myself and to my reader uh, about a week ago, and I keep returning to it. Note to the reader nothing that travels is straight, we all zigzag, and there is nothing more jagged than the human mind once it turns to fancy. Samuel Taylor Coleridge said this in his famous definition of the imagination, in his Biographia Literaria. The fancy, he reminds us, is whimsical, unreliable, and associative. It runs hither and thither, doing what work it pleases, and leaving out what it doesn't. Fancy prefers to play. Memory is like this. It creates a mental cinema, which evolves and then dissolves sets of images, each one competing for attention, asking to be gulped and swallowed, stored away. This is a memory scape inspired by cinema, by lives led on screen. It is a biography of the mind designed as a filmic reel with jumps and cuts between scenes. It is how I experience my own mind day to day now that we are all so consumed by screen life. That light and dark pond, those endlessly distracting shadows. It is an elegy for the person I used to be before I began living this way a more innocent age when imaginative projects came quickly to fruition. Whole books in a day. I have the image of another character in my book, Pond Life, who's the counterpart to Edith. Her name is Dorothy and she's grander. She has more money. She's the lady of the manor she has in her garden an urn a stone urn or a vase where we imagine something is buried her past her grief the child she may have lost it's never said directly but it's implied in some sense dorothy my character is in a state of grief and loss um, and in a trance state really behind her stone wall And Dorothy begins to emerge from her state of grief by beginning a new project, which is what I suppose all writers must do, or all artists, keep going, making new things. She decides to have a pond built in her garden. And a pond man arrives mysteriously. He's recommended to her husband, Henry, by Mr. Jarvis at The Chemist. So he comes along and builds Dorothy a pond, and she starts to fall in love with him. At least to become entranced by his mystery and his mythic nature. She has no idea where he comes from. She has no idea who he is. He barely speaks. He just looks, observes, and does the work he's asked to do. She begins to create images in her mind of who he might be. Something eternal. Something ancient. An everyman. A mythic character. Part man, part fish. I call the good stuff of myth. He goes under the water to to see how deep her pond is. After all, he's built it, he must know the dimensions. Dorothy's pond becomes a place for her to muse upon the afterlife, to pass beyond her current life, to create more space for herself, for being in the world. It's a place too where she projects. It's her cinema space. It's her screen space. Edith has the windmill theatre on the seafront and Dorothy has her pond with her yellow lilies. And that's one of the tropes or the metaphors or the figures of pond life is this idea of submergence, of underwater life, of invisible natural life that goes on all around us that we do not see, that we do not know but nonetheless is there and nonetheless is in danger. Edith dreams least three times in the case of pond life and in her dream she learns things about herself and others that she wouldn't otherwise have access to in the daily world of polite, genteel, provincial life. Which of us has a plot? Which of us truly? I do not believe you do. I do not. You go to bed and read your mystery because you do not have the courage to ask what it is you do not know, what it is you do not have. Edith knew that Dorothy Fortescue, for that was her name, possessed all the mystery. With her high manor wall, her devoted husband, her sources of help, People will always pay attention to Dorothy, inquire after her health, when what they mean is her fortune, her wealth. While Edith's life has always lacked biography, only loneliness, so ordinary and drab, so ordinary and drab, Edith Cull, a cliché. No one cares to conjecture. Edith is spiralling inwards, she is wandering in the dark. Where is she? Where is she? Where are you, Edith Carl? Where are you? What happened to the last few years, dear? The lights went out. The lights went down. And who then was managing history? Thank you for listening to A Reading Life, A Writing Life with writer and teacher Sally Bailey produced by Andrew Smith If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like it, give us a review or mention us to friends or on social media Thank you